Hi, I'm Bernard Leong and you may know me as the executive who is actively engaged with technology companies and in my spare time, I want to know how we should invest or value the BAD, PMD or other technology companies in China. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Elliot segment, co-host of the China Tech Investor Podcast and consultant and executive coach for CEOs of China tech companies and also a writer. Welcome, Elliot, and it's great to have you here first time on Analyze Asia. Thanks, it's great to be here. I have started listening to your new podcast, and before we get to there, and of course we want to talk about how to understand or even value Chinese tech companies as an investor, I wanted to get to know you better. How do you start your career? Oh man, I've probably spent a good uh, eight years altogether in China or in Asia in one way or another. The first time I ever came to China was after I graduated from college in 2008. I came with a teaching program. I didn't really know much about China. I was just very interested in it. And I came to China a week before the Olympics. I went to the Olympics. I, I taught in China for a year and I just kind of fell in love with it because of all the changes and how dynamic it was. So I went back to the U.S. I went to grad school and then I came back to China and I have been kind of working in one way or another in China ever since. And for the last, you know, maybe three or four years, I've worked more in the China tech space. And I really enjoyed that because I think that a lot of the people who I meet in China tech, they're very forward thinking. It's very dynamic. A lot of the people who you know, start these tech companies in China, you know, they used to be a journalist or they used to be a musician or they have these very interesting backstories that you don't find in more traditional industries. So I really fall in love with China and the China tech space, and that's why I wanted to start the podcast. Throughout your career journey, I guess, because you're working in various different types of roles, you do executive coaching for CEOs of China tech companies, you write, and you also co-host podcasts. What kind of interesting lessons you can share with my audience in terms of how you look at your career as a whole? Well, fundamentally, what I like to do is I like to learn things. So I like to just observe the world around me. Um, I'm a curious person. I like to take in that information, synthesize that information, and then share it with other people. So whether I'm, I'm working with executives, whether I'm writing, whether I'm hosting a podcast, it's all kind of the same thing in that way. So I just like different avenues through which I can do that. I guess what I, what I try to really do is just, you know, I'm going on my own learning journey. And I kind of invite you know, different people to come along with me in different ways. That's kind of how I view my career. Can you talk more about the new China Tech Investor podcast that you're co-hosting currently with TechNote? And I guess I want to know what is the team and who are the audience that it is intended for? Sure. For me, I'm always very interested in kind of tech, obviously, but I'm also a retail investor myself. So I'm very interested in the stock market. I like to know companies from the perspective of an investor. I think it's a very interesting way to look at companies. And my co-host, James Hull, he is a portfolio manager. He's also American, but he's also been in China for about 10 years. So when I met James, we really hit it off. We we're both really interested in China and interested in China tech, but we had different strengths. I knew these companies more from working with them or for them or knowing the people who run them. For him, he's a portfolio manager who can look really deeply into, into the numbers in ways that maybe I don't have the same kind of capabilities to do so. So I think we complement each other a lot in that way. So we decided, okay, well, uh, you know, we would have a lot of conversations between the two of us. And then we just thought, well, why don't we just record these 
and hopefully people can benefit from it. Our target audience is really anyone who's interested in China tech, but more specifically, anyone who's interested in investing in China tech. So portfolio managers, people who are working for maybe institutional investors. And we're trying to, to get a grip on how to view these Chinese tech companies as investors. I think what we're seeing right now is that there are so many, especially smaller cap companies that are IPOing, that it can be difficult to really get a clear picture and a clear grip on them because the rules that govern the Chinese economy and the rules that govern how these companies work, some of them are the same as you would look at, for example, a Silicon Valley company, but a lot of the rules are different. So what we're hoping to do is learn more ourselves about how these companies either are similar or different from maybe their Silicon Valley counterparts, but also you know, how we can make the most prudent decisions as investors who I think over the long term are quite bullish on this space, but are trying to you know, make sure that, that we are, are, are making the right decisions. Do you find that there is a cultural difference between the investors in the US or in Asia? Because they don't see these Chinese tech companies. I mean, no one in U.S. uses Meituan Dianping. No one in U.S. uses Alipay or WeChat. So there is a kind of arbitrage that they don't really understand these companies, which also affect their investment decisions. And they tend to think of these companies similar to their U.S. counterparts. Yes, that's a great point. And that's something that I, I often get quite frustrated with. I listen to The Motley Fool a lot, and I follow The Motley Fool. For those who don't know what The Motley Fool is, it's a great series of, of podcasts and online content for retail investors. So they're really, really good at looking at particularly tech companies out of Silicon Valley and looking at them from the perspective of investors. What I do get quite frustrated with is when they talk about Chinese companies, because a lot of their analysts, even though they're very smart and they, they really know how to dig into the numbers, they're not in China, so they don't really get a full understanding of how these Chinese companies work. So their thinking of is, is something like, okay, well, I'm bullish on e-commerce and I want to diversify my e-commerce holdings, so I'm going to go buy JD, right, so that I have a stake in the Chinese e-commerce market. There's nothing, I think, wrong with that, but it's an incomplete picture. So what James and I are hoping to do is give a more complete picture for investors when it comes to those companies, more on the ground to understand how these companies actually operate and how they work on the ground. A metaphor that I like to use is Darwinian divergent evolution. I wrote a piece about this about a year ago that was published on China, and I use this example of these two animals. One is called the okapi and the other is the giraffe, all right? So the okapi is not a very well-known animal, but it looks kind of like a half zebra, half deer, and it lives in the jungles of Central Africa. Now, the okapi has not changed very much from its ancestor about 16 million years ago. It's gotten kind of bigger, but that's about it. Right? But 16 million years ago, some of, of its ancestors, or its relatives, I guess, went out into the savanna of eastern Africa, right, where there's fewer of the, the low-hanging bushes and things like that 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 animal would like to eat. And there were more like acacia trees where the, the leaves that they would eat would be higher up. And there were faster, bigger predators. So that animal ended up evolving longer legs and a very, very long neck in order to eat the acacia trees it became the giraffe, right? And I think we're seeing a very similar thing happen in the difference between these Silicon Valley companies and Chinese tech companies. If you look at, for example, Baidu and Google, they started off as very similar companies, right? They're both basically search engines, but they were in different environments. So we've seen that 
Google has evolved into something that I'd say is much stronger and much more impressive than Baidu. And Baidu has not taken those same steps. Some of Baidu's successes, for example, with ICE, Google has not had that same kind of success, but they've succeeded in other areas. Also, if you look at, for example, Meituan Dianping versus Groupon, I know very few people who use Groupon in the states right now. It has kind of fallen from grace, I think, in a lot of ways. But the Meituan Dianping has turned into a juggernaut. They've evolved into very, very different companies. And if you are just using that comparison of Baidu is the Google of China or Meituan is the Groupon of China, you're not going to really understand these companies. So, which comes to the main topic of the day is to how to understand Chinese tech companies as an investor, or should I be more clearly as a retail investor? But of course, to be fair, we are not here to give any securities advice. We are just here to discuss and analyze some of these thinking about these companies today here. So, I want to start off by asking you. I think you brought up a very interesting point about using Darwinism as a way to look at how these companies evolve against their U.S. counterparts. How would you introduce China tech companies today to investors, retail investors, not just in the U.S. but maybe all over the world? And how are they compared against U.S. companies? People used to love to say things like the Google of China, the Facebook of China, the Groupon of China. Are these labels still work in China today? Because I find that the evolution of these companies are totally different from what we have seen previously. Absolutely, I'd say it's getting harder and harder to use those comparisons. Now, that doesn't mean that some of those comparisons are not valid and cannot be used as helpful models in looking at some of these companies. For example, if you look at Alibaba, Alibaba is an e-commerce company like Amazon. Amazon has had success. I think what has really catapulted Amazon to the next level of success that they've had over the past few years is their cloud services. Alibaba has seen that, even though Alibaba is not an exact analog to Amazon, they've definitely been able to take some lessons from Amazon, and they've gone heavily into cloud, and that's been a strong growth engine for them as well. But we can also see that Amazon, and you know maybe the U.S. and the markets that Amazon is in right now, they are, I think, a little more advanced when it comes to the penetration of cloud services. So when we look at Amazon or Alibaba has a foothold in China when it comes to cloud. And if we're looking at the prospects for them going forward, we can see the strength that or the growth that Amazon has been able to have from their cloud services, and say, well, we can expect to see a similar kind of growth coming from Alibaba's cloud services as well. So it's not that we can't use you know those analogs at all, but I think it's important to know these companies so that you can know where the analogs are valid and where they're not. I was reading the other day. An analysis. I'm not going to say where of Baidu, and I am not particularly bullish on Baidu. I don't think they're a terrible company, but they're not, you know, my favorite. But they kept saying, okay, well, Google is trading at this many times earnings, and Baidu is only trading at this many times earnings. So Baidu is a good value, and I just thought that was a terrible comparison to make. You look at what Google's done with their cloud services. You look at what Google's done by basically creating an entire online ecosystem that Baidu has not. Just because they're both most well known for their search doesn't mean that they're the same company, and I think people really need to understand that. And when introducing these Chinese tech companies to the investors, do you think that getting them to at least have some understanding of China, or at least getting them to China to see what is going on, is really important? I made this joke once to someone who advises one of the big international banks in the UK, and what I told him is that if you really want to understand fintech, 
why don't you just bring the entire board to China and show them what WeChat Pay looks like? And I think that that will tell you a lot about what fintech is really in China. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned fintech. I think that there are some areas like that. I think e-commerce is also one of them where the traditional infrastructure in China isn't there. So the government in the state sector has had a very tight stranglehold or, I mean, it depends on how you want to look at it, but they have kind of dominated the financial space, but they have not been particularly innovative in that space. And it's been difficult for private businesses, for individuals to get, for example, access to credit and to get access to the kind of banking services that they need because of the way that state banks operate. What fintech companies have done is they basically leapfrogged a lot of the private banking innovations that we've seen happening over the last 40 years or 100 years, in some cases, in the West and just go right to the digital space. It's the same thing with e-commerce, I think, as well, that you know they didn't build the same amount of brick-and-mortar retail in China. They just ended up leapfrogging straight to e-commerce. So I think that there are also a lot of dangers here, a lot of risks. In China, a lot of that fintech space their shadow banking sector just put online. So we've seen this with, for example, P2P, complete collapse earlier this year in, uh, in P2P lending and a lot of these Ponzi schemes. But in other ways, we're looking at what WeChat's been able to do, what Amp Financial's been able to do with things like online payments. And it's been really, really impressive. So I think in looking at China, what we can see is really lessons that other companies can be learning as well. What to do and what not to do, I think, when it comes to spaces like fintech. So this comes to my next question. What would be the key metrics or indicators that you identify in a Chinese tech company for investments? We know revenue, we know EBITDA, we know operating costs. These are basic metrics, right? But of course, we need much more than that because some of these companies are pretty amalgated. I can't see Alibaba just being an Amazon equivalent because it has other components of the business that are so different, whereas you also see JD, which looks a little bit more like Amazon in terms of the logistics with its own vertical integrations. So what kind of metrics or indicators would you use to identify these companies then? Well, you have a lot of this kind of standard metrics and indicators that you have, you know, looking at any other kind of company. But I think also you do have to think about some of the stuff that is not going to be on paper, but that you just kind of learn from being in tech circles. For example, what kind of good graces are they in with regulators? I think that especially for the big tech companies, they're operating more and more lately like a a kind of hybrid state-owned companies, even if they're not officially state-owned they act kind of as arms of the government in a lot of ways. So understanding how they relate with the government, I think is very, very important in ways that I think are part in some ways parallel to, for example, you know, Amazon and the US government, but in some ways that are not parallel at all. So I think that that is also a very important thing to look at because you could have, for example, a completely successful CEO but they are not saying the right things in line with, for example, certain party directives, or if they have interests that are not completely aligned with central government initiatives, they might not be doing too well. So I think that looking at it from that perspective as well is very, very important, especially nowadays when you see, for example, the party taking more control over the tech space. So, for example, there is a backlash recently with the single day's GMV numbers, which is most notably taken down by Tim Kapan from Bloomberg, one of my guests on the show, and yourself. Can you elaborate why those numbers from one day are just meaningless, or can you actually infer anything real from them meaningfully? 
they're not entirely meaningless, right? They're meaningful as, for example, a cultural phenomenon. They're meaningful in showing how, you know, how important these days are. They're not meaningful if you're thinking about, okay, well, Alibaba sold 30 billion US dollars of GMV on Singles Day this year, so they're going to have a successful quarter. I think that's an unwise way to look at it. The way that you can look at it is that really what they're doing with these specials is that they're, they're, they're marketing events is what they're doing. They're trying to attract users to their platform. So with a lot of these products, they're selling them either at a loss or at cost, or they're pushing other vendors to sell them at a loss or at cost. They're not recording returns. There are loads of ways that any number of, of entities within their ecosystems can be fudging the numbers. They are not being you know, looked through with a fine-tooth comb by you know, KPMG. <laughs> so look at these numbers as basically just marketing tactics. Right? They're a gimmick is what they are. But what they do is they attract people to their platforms. They attract users to their platforms. And hopefully, those users will stay on their platforms for the next coming months, for the coming years even. But when it comes to China, I think that they've already gotten a lot of the low-hanging fruit when it comes to converting people from traditional retail to e-commerce. So the value of attracting people to their platforms are less because they're not going to get somebody who previously was not shopping online and now is shopping online. And because of the specials they saw on Taobao, they're going to stay on Taobao, right? So that happened in 2011, 2012, 2013, where they kind of converted users from traditional retailers to e-commerce, and they created some kind of customer loyalty. Now that's not happening in China. Where it might happen, and I think a very interesting place to look is where I am right now, which is Thailand in Southeast Asia, where you know, both JD and their new joint venture here with Central Group, Lazada, which is Alibaba owned, they are pushing hard to establish Singles Day as a holiday here because the e-commerce market is really not as developed as it is in China. So if you look at the total internet economy in Southeast Asia, meaning e-commerce, online payment, ride sharing or mobility and social media is about a 50 billion dollar industry in southeast asia by 2025 it's expected to be 200 billion dollar industry so it is growing like crazy in southeast asia right now so i think that looking at the numbers that come out of here and how these uh, e-commerce platforms can retain their new e-commerce users in southeast asia is a very important metric to look at so this is where I can add a little bit because in my previous background with Singpost, which was invested by Alibaba. So one problem I always see with everybody criticizing all these GMV numbers is about whether the load is really real. So coming from my background was that when we first started to get load from the Alibaba group, taking all their single days logistics down into Southeast Asia, we experienced a two orders of magnitude growth mm. in just one single week. Wow. Right. But then something that I think nobody actually ever talks about. So I was looking at our parcels and logistics. Imagine because the post office can only store these boxes for a very short time. We have been flooded 
in the past few years, year on year is actually double to the point where the post office couldn't even hold enough inventory. So I kind of find it a little bit strange when people think about all these e-commerce GMV numbers in terms of the sales, but not in terms of the load that is taken by the logistics company. Wow. <laughs> Which I think is actually very strange. I think that Tim and your criticisms are correct, but even I think maybe getting deeper into how these things are actually delivered and products would give us some meaningful indicators on these companies itself. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And also, I mean, if you look at, I think it's one of JD's strengths. They have a world-class logistics system. It's the one thing that really sets them apart. And seeing how they are able to basically build that capacity in a place like Southeast Asia is going to be something that I pay attention to. Which is also the same as Amazon. So actually, I would probably be interested to see who actually can take on Amazon better. Is it Alibaba or JD? But coming back, given that most of the upstarts like Xiaomi, Mi Twenty, and Ping Ping, Duoduo, and soon ByteDance has gone or will be going IPO, how does that change the way investors reviewing their China tech portfolio then? Well, we're getting a lot more companies out there now. There are good things and there are bad things about that. So, for example, we're going to get a lot more. We already have a lot more small cap companies. So these companies that are are going to have, you know, a few billion dollars in market cap, and they could go up a lot or they could go down a lot. We saw this happen, I think, with a lot of the fintech companies like Chudian. I think they they went public and they had a great IPO last October. They hit the market somewhere around thirty dollars a share, and they're trading around four right now because of a series of scandals that they had. So I think that. Investors need to be a lot more wary and a lot more choosy about what companies they choose to invest in, because with an Alibaba or even Meituan or, or Xiaomi, it's unlikely that you could see your entire investment just almost completely disintegrate, because we know that they're fairly strong companies. But if you look at some of these smaller cap IPOs, there are some that you know are really like potential home runs but others that could completely take you for a ride. So I think it's very important to be looking into these companies in detail and knowing what the risk that you're exposing yourself to is. Because I don't think any of us want another Chudian <laughs> to be happening to us. So yeah, I think just knowing what company you're getting into, knowing who's behind the company, and knowing where the, what their risks are, I think is super, super important. And more so than when it was just some of these large cap companies going public. So unlike other U.S. tech companies, which seems to be one product or service focus, Chinese tech companies are much more integrated. Just as an example, right? If you think of May 20 and Ping, it's an amalgamation of Yelp, Groupon, Foursquare, Uber Eats, and maybe now even Uber because they're also doing transportation. How should investors think of them differently? That's a very, very good point. I think what we have to look at with the with the data that they have is that it has a more exponential effect. So the more that you can put it together, it's going to be more like a hockey stick rather than just this kind of sequential addition of value. So what Meituan's able to do by bringing all these services together is that what they have together is they're greater than their sum of their parts, right? The way that I look at, for example, Meituan Dianping where their strength really is all that data that they have and what they could potentially do with that in the future. I think to look at Meituan, we have to think of it as an entirely different being and look at them through just the value of all of that data that they're going to have. So what they can do from being kind of Yelp plus Uber Eats, right, 
is that they're both a, a rating system, right? So you go on them for to figure out, okay, well, is this good food or not? And then you also order. But then also they can use the amount that user engagement that they have and basically spin that off into any other kind of services that they want to go into. So for example, I believe I read a report recently that Meituan was used more for travel booking than Ctrip, which is China's number one travel platform. So by having that user engagement, by having all that data, they're able to have an advantage in just about any area that they go into, which is why I am very very bullish uh, over the long term on Meituan Dianping, even though you know they're burning money still at this time. I'm just very curious and we just want to take the last quarterly earnings as a gauge. I just want to get your thoughts on the snapshots of these companies, okay? And it's not to sort of make you think about them in a long-term trajectory. What do you think of the BAT? Let's start from Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Where do you think these companies are? Okay, I'm just going to give real real like small snapshots for each of these. Um mm. but when it comes to Baidu, the question that I have is are we sure they're a good company? Cuz I'm not. <laughs> What we've seen is that yes they have kind of dominance in search. They spun off ITE which is its own stock and I'm far more bullish on ITE over the long term than I am on Baidu because their margins keep getting squeezed because they're investing more and more into these long-term R&D projects like self-driving vehicles, like medtech, this whole kind of quote-unquote industrial internet. But I'm not convinced that Baidu can you know, really produce something of value over the long term. But I welcome them to prove me wrong. But that's what I look at Baidu. The thing that I'm most bullish about with Baidu is ITE, which is its own stock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always like to use the romance of three kingdoms to look at Baidu as the shoe girl. You have a lot of good five-star generals, but you never win the war against your two other competitors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what about Alibaba and Tencent then? So Alibaba the the key thing to watch at least from my point of view is cloud services. So their CEO Daniel Jung said that you know their future is on the cloud. And in the last earnings report I believe that they said their cloud services had grown 91% year over year and they have the lead when it comes to the cloud in China. And if they can retain that lead, they are going to be a good company to hold over the long term. So that's what I think about with Alibaba. Anything to add with that? I saw a very interesting Wall Street Journal infographic where I think if you look at the global market share, Amazon Web Services is number one, followed by Azure, and I think number three is Alibaba, and their percentage of market share is only differed by one two percent, which is pretty interesting to me for that. How about Tencent then? Tencent, I am probably the most positive over the long term for Tencent for a few different reasons. One is listeners might know that China's had a lot of gaming headwinds that are self-inflicted really because the Chinese government hasn't approved new games and it'll probably be an entire year where they will not have approved any new games and there's new regulations that are coming down as well and that's really has been 10 cents cash cow. 10 cents stock has been plummeting since then from a high of about 450 something around there mid 400 uh, Hong Kong dollars per share. to I think it hit mid October somewhere around like 260 per share so you know it lost over 40% of its value and now it's spiked up a little bit again it's rebounded some but I think that they're a good buy I've been buying up more and more shares you know not investment advice but 
I personally have been buying more shares because I think that they're strong over the long term. So their chairman, Pony Ma, has talked about a shift into the quote unquote industrial internet, which is basically, you know, things like med tech, things like, I mean, Alibaba has talked about new retail and, and Tencent trying to go into that space as well, but more looking at enterprise services rather than B2C services. And they have all that WeChat data, which gives them a secret weapon that nobody else has in China. So when it comes to, for example, you know, med tech, by having everybody's WeChat data, the personal data for an entire country, the potential for applying that to a place like medical is limitless. So I'm really excited to see how they make this strategic shift and how they can apply some of their strengths that they have in social to these enterprise services that they have. Mm. What I am also very interested in is I had Matt Brennan on my podcast. I think he's been a guest on your podcast before, right? Mm. I had Matt Brennan is a you know a Tencent expert, and he was talking about how the greatest challenge for them is shifting their culture. So one thing that they've said is that they're going to do away with this whole horse race culture that they've had and they've been very famous for. So I am very interested in seeing how they shift the way in which they organize their company. And that's not going to be easy. Um, I think a model to look at for that is Microsoft. Microsoft used to have a lot of internal competition in their Bill Gates days. And now in this kind of renaissance that they've had over the last five years or so, they're far more collaborative. So I think looking at how Tencent is going to shift and adjust their culture is going to be something I'm going to pay attention to. And then I'm going to get to the other four companies, maybe in no order. JD? JD, um, they're losing users. If you look at it from Q2 to Q3, their user numbers fell, which was surprising to me. What also should be considered there is that Q2 is when they have their 618 festival. So it's a shopping festival where they attract more users. So that could be part of it. But also, I'm not super bullish on them over the long term. You know, they have those core strengths. They have excellent logistics. But when you look at the Chinese economy, over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see probably a consumption downgrade. People spending less money on things like luxury goods and premium electronics, which is where JD makes a lot of their commissions. Also, they haven't diversified into other areas in ways that I would hope to see them do it. And then also, we don't know what's going to happen with Richard Leo, their founder and CEO, and with everything going on in the U.S. So there's a lot of question marks there. Their stock has lost almost 60% of its value. I am not super bullish on JD. How about Xiaomi? Xiaomi is a big question mark. So we're recording this on November 20th. Hmm. They just released their Q3 numbers. And it wasn't too bad. They're seeing continued growth. They're selling more higher-end phones. They're diversifying their growth so it's more international. However, their gross margins, their operating margins, are getting narrower. And that's probably because they are spending more on marketing abroad. Mm. And that's my guess. Didn't say why. So that's not sustainable, I don't think. They need to be able to keep their users that they get through heavy marketing spends. They need to keep them using their products going forward. And then when, if they can do that, they can sell them more internet services, which is where their margins are. That's about 9% of their sales right now. And that number needs to go up. But another thing that we're seeing them having them doing quite well in is they're selling more of their higher end phones. So we're seeing 
they're starting to get some traction, uh, not just as being known as a cheap brand, but as its own brand in and of itself. So, you know, they're not going to be the luxury brand that Apple is, but they're going to be something that has a brand value premium to it so that, you know, people might be willing to spend a little more on a Xiaomi because it's a Xiaomi. Mm. Yeah. And then I know you've already commented on Meituan Dianping. What about Pinduoduo then? Pinduoduo. I'm holding Pinduoduo. I'm a little nervous about it, but I think that fundamentally their business model is good. I'm worried about their moat to see if somebody else might eat their lunch. But going forward, if we're worried about a recession or you know trade tensions between China and the U.S. harming, for example, luxury sales. Pinduoduo operates with a lot more of those basics, right? The toilet papers, <laughs> you know, things like that, that people are going to buy no matter what. So Pinduoduo might be recession-proof in some ways. That is what I like about them. However, there's a number of different areas where, you know, from their fake goods issues to that their moat might not be strong enough that a competitor could come in. Those are some things I would worry about with them. But I do like the fact that they're going after the more rural users, the users that are getting online still for the first time in China, so they can have some more growth potential there. So what is the future for Chinese tech companies in the next year? Will the US-China escalating trade tensions or any external event change that will actually change that calculus for the tech companies that are currently in the public markets? Absolutely, it will <laughs> It will have a huge impact. So if things aren't able to get better, then we're going to see the values of these companies probably go down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that simple. And if things continue to go in a really negative direction, like, you know, I, I don't want to think about it, <laughs> but, but diversify, be prepared, you know, get some bonds, get some U.S. stocks as well, because you don't know where it's going to go. I don't know where it's going to go. Um, but hopefully we'll get some kind of, you know, trade deals. Hopefully we, we have some kind of, a, you know, positive movement when it comes to internal reforms in China. And hopefully we have some reason to be optimistic. I do think that if you are an investor who is optimistic on the future of U.S.-China relations and, and thinking that, you know, we'll get through it, I think you have some really good buys right now. You know, like I mentioned, Tencent lost 40% of its value. I think that's a great buy. You know, a lot of these companies are cheap if you think that the U.S. and China can strike a, you know, a sustainable deal or agreement on trade issues. If you're not, then these stocks look expensive. Mm. So I don't know. <laughs> I hope it works out. I'm pretty sure I'll get you back on the show and then we will talk about what happens in 2019. But in closing, I want to ask you, can you recommend a book, podcast, or anything else that has impact to your work and personal life recently? Yeah, I can recommend a lot of things. <laughs> but I read, or actually I don't read books, I listen to books. I listen to audiobooks. I love listening to books on China. And one book that I listened to recently was John Pomfret's The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom. So it's about the relationship between the U.S. and China from 1776 to the present. It's, I mean, it's a long book, but it's fascinating. I mean, and obviously John Pomfret is American, so it's written from a more American perspective. But I just found it to be so insightful and so thoughtful 
And he really writes with an affection, a deep affection for both countries. He was the Washington Post bureau chief in Beijing for a number of years, and he spent a lot of time in China. So, yeah, I think for somebody like me who also spends a lot of time in China and has deep affection, obviously, for both countries, I really appreciated his writing. And since we are talking about investors, I would highly recommend a book recently I've read. I'm actually reading the follow-up book now. I would like to recommend Howard Marks, The Most Important Thing which I think is a very interesting way of thinking about investments. And the follow-up book is actually on how to understand market cycles, oh, wow. which I, is actually derived from the first book. So how do my audience find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Elliot Zagman. That's at E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-H-E-M-A-N. You can also search me on LinkedIn. And you can listen to my podcast, the China Tech Investor Podcast. And you can read me on TechNode or from the Lowy Institute interpreter blog, or in Chinese on Hu Xiaowang. And you can definitely Google me at Bernard Long. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and of course, Spotify. Do tweet to us and give us a five-star rating on iTunes because for Discovery and also for One Star and on Pocket or Overcast. And of course, most importantly, tweet me to your feedback. I would like to also thank some of the subscribers that have been sending me recommendations and ideas on who to interview. And I'm definitely trying my best to contact those speakers you want. And once again, Elliot, many thanks for coming on the show and definitely want to talk to you again. Thanks.